You're listening to Terrible Omens. I'm Elaine Gray. Chapter 11 One week later, we moved. I found us a house to rent on the slopes of Pittsburgh's south side. It took more than we had to do it, but I made it happen on a shoestring in my credit card. The house was a tiny, insulbrick row house built around 1906. The first floor had the kitchen and the main living space, with a bathroom that was added in by our landlord when she bought the place. Before that, there was only a toilet behind the door to the basement and a shower nozzle over a drain hole in the basement for bathing. Upstairs, there was one main bedroom that I like to call the loft, even though it wasn't one, with an additional cramped storage space that extended under the eaves. Outside, there was a small yard with a cherry tree and a line of pink peony bushes that ran along the cracked cement steps that led to the alley in the back. The house wasn't much to look at, but to me it dripped with nostalgia and felt like heaven. I had finally found a place that I could make into a home. I loved almost everything about living there, at least in the summertime. There were shops, restaurants, and a dance studio down in the flats that were walking distance away. There was a network of winding public stairs that made getting down the hill an adventure and going home a cardio workout. I lovingly dubbed the 317 steps that led up to our street, Buzzkill Hill. That trek plus a giant glass of water before bed was quite the hangover prevention. After we moved, I found a job for myself. It wasn't ideal, but it was work, and Darren had no complaints about it, so it was a good start. I made a flat $35,000 per year and had to adjust my boss in his boxer shorts at least once a month. To be crystal clear, I mean chiropractic adjustments only, but it was still completely creepy and thoroughly inappropriate. Not long after we got settled, Darren discovered his next true love, homebrewing beer. The look on his face the first time he stepped through the door at the brewing supply store said it all. He had found a new religion. Like a new convert at a tent revival, he was ready to prostrate himself and start speaking in tongues, which tended to happen naturally if he drank enough anyway, so it was a perfect match from the start. The whole thing was my fault to begin with. It all started several weeks earlier when we had dinner with Darren's friend and best man, Chris, one of Darren's old college frat pack members. Being the young, upwardly mobile business stud that Chris considered himself to be, his pre-dinner entertainment included a tour of his two-bedroom rented apartment and his new wine cellar. The wine cellar amounted to a community basement where he had several bubbling buckets of fermenting grape juice sitting next to a washing machine. It wasn't a wine cellar exactly, and how he managed to successfully complete anything in that dank, mold-covered basement was beyond me, but it was intriguing and was definitely good fodder for small talk. I think maybe I might have appeared a little more interested than was required for such a social situation. Pittsburgh was lonely, and I had been bored for a long time. I really enjoyed all of the wine, too. The conversation got away from me. The easy small talk about vinification turned into more talk throughout the evening, and then more on the way home, and then every day with Darren for over a week. At the time, I thought we needed a hobby, something that we could enjoy doing together. Little did I know, I wasn't just talking about a new hobby. I was creating a giant wormhole that would suck the entirety of our lives into it. First, there was the single wine kit that we bought from the homebrewer's supply store. 
It was mostly idiot-proof and relatively inexpensive, and it set us up with just about everything we needed to make any sort of bathtub-style alcoholic beverage we could think of aside from moonshine. The whole thing made enough wine to last me for a couple of years at the rate I drank, and in the end we lost most of it thanks to inadequate corks and careless bottle sanitizing. But that was only the experiment that got the whole thing started. Darren had his sights set on bigger and more intricate alcoholic endeavors. As soon as the fermenting bucket was empty, it was all about the beer. Our low-budget weekend excursions to the Strip District for lunch and some produce turned into weekly pilgrimages to the brewing supply store with a mandatory two-hour session with his old hippie brew guru, Dave. The supply store itself was an odd place. There were herbs, grains, bottles, and pots covering the shelves and racks of tools for every possible need in the realm of alcoholic alchemy. Brewguru Dave owned the shop and was happy to answer questions and tell stories of his home-brewing escapades like an old fisherman spinning yarns of giant fish. I would stare out at the people walking by, wishing that I was somewhere else and that I had never shown interest in any of it, ever. Right away, Darren dove into his studies. His eyes would glow whenever he picked up his book of recipes aptly titled The Homebrewer's Bible. Gingerly, he would trace his fingers over its cover before flipping through the pages. He spent long hours in his kitchen laboratory boiling, stirring, straining, and pouring, far more time and energy than he had ever put into chiropractic college. The house would be filled with a distinct aroma of hops and barley, and nearly every other weekend he spent several hundred dollars, that we didn't have to spare, on more supplies. In the beginning, the process was actually somewhat exciting to witness. It was like watching a little bit of world history mixed with a little chemistry and some biology. Darren was even reanimating bags of dry brewer's yeast. It was only the replication of a simple, single-celled organism, but I think his passion and his piecemeal laboratory would definitely have been Dr. Frankenstein approved. I don't know if Darren was a particularly gifted home brewer. I know that in the beginning he tried to work with great precision. He sanitized, scrubbed, measured, and took notes as he went along. He collected recipes and brewing manuals. It was his passion replete with snobbish self-righteousness and disdain for common beer and the uninitiated. After his first sip of his first pint of his first batch, he was never the same. He was drunk on his own beer-brewing power, and then with time, he was just drunk. Brewing can be a finicky process especially for someone with a short attention span. It requires time, patience, and a controlled environment for it to work well. This was a challenge for Darren. Patience and attention to detail were not his strengths. He struggled when he had to wait, which frequently led to brewing shortcuts and to the procurement of commercially bottled beers to mitigate his anticipation between batches of his own product. But as he put it, they just aren't the same. As the months passed, Darren became markedly less meticulous and even less willing to clean up the kitchen after he was done. He would cite the old notion that a messy desk was a sign of a brilliant mind. At first, I pointed out that it was a kitchen, not a desk. When that didn't work, I declared that he who maketh the mess shall cleaneth the mess. It had no effect on him either. 
Since I was the one who wanteth a clean house, I could regularly be found cleaning partially dried puddles of beer off the floor and the walls and sometimes the ceiling. Over time, Darren's homebrew started to morph. They got stronger and more powerful. He started brewing recklessly and with little regard for consistency or other people's opinions. Despite the mess and his cowboy-like approach to established brewing norms, I was on board with Darren's hobby for a while. It kept him occupied when we weren't working. It gave him something to focus on other than chiropractic and his mother, whom he still talked to at least once a day. Unfortunately for me, however, Darren's glorious homebrew started making me sick. I don't just mean I had a little hangover or a fuzzy head the morning after. I mean I was full-on, puking, shaking, headache for at least two days kind of sick. I started drinking less and less, but my physical rejection of his bruise kept getting worse and worse. After a time, I couldn't even be in the house when he was brewing on the stove. He kept telling me I was overreacting and then later that I was just getting old, but I knew there was something more to it. Despite my body's obvious rejections, every weekend Darren would plead with me, Come on, just have a drink with me. I don't want to drink alone. He always made it seem like I was the unreasonable one for not wanting to imbibe. You used to be so much fun. I like drunk you. As offensive as this should have been, I let myself be lured in by it more often than I cared to admit. Somehow I failed to ask any probing follow-up questions like, What do you mean by drunk me? Or, Don't you like the rest of me? Or, Wow, am I really that different after one beer? Maybe I need medication. Or maybe, if drunk you doesn't get along with sober me, why am I putting up with drunk you so much? These are just a few of the possible questions that a normal, rational person might have asked. I didn't ask. I always wondered why my drunk pronoun state was so much more appealing than my regular pronoun state. If his goal had been to kill me slowly or to embarrass me, it might have made more sense, but if not, the cost of it was awfully high for very little return. It wasn't like drunk me had an insatiable craving for passionate sex romps in the living room or mind-expanding intellectual conversation. I can't imagine that the cranky, vomitous lump of a human that greeted him the next morning was his intended result, but he carried on nonetheless. Maybe he was secretly hoping I would just vaporize and be gone. Whatever the motivation, he never stopped asking and seemed really excited when I complied. No matter what choice I made, he kept going most of the time. As you might suppose, he found friends who shared his passion for anything in a pint glass and who were more than willing to help him test his bruise. There was a steady parade of friends, both old and new, who made their way through the door, lured by the promise of free beer and a good time. I could usually judge the quality of any visitor based on their response to his concoctions. A vigorous man, this is great, was a clear sign of a man-baby and was usually followed by a progression of verbal deterioration, glass-breaking, and lighting something on fire. Some were merely curious and appropriately dubious about what was in their glass. Those who had managed to internalize the time-honored maternal directives about what to do if there isn't anything nice to say would give an obligatory mmm as they gently placed the glass back on the table. Slowly, they would work their way through the pint, but 
an hour of polite sipping was usually enough to change even the most discriminating palate to a swill-swigging plebeian. A few were bold enough to offer tasting notes as Darren stood by waiting for praise. This was never good for me or the remains of my weekend. A simple comment like, I think the Cascade hops are a little overwhelming. Fuggles might be better next time, about the hop content of his precious homebrew, usually meant days of nonstop griping about such audacity and inability to appreciate his artistic choices. I personally never thought that something that unavoidably ended up as urine or vomit qualified as art, but according to Darren, I did not possess his refined palate and was ill-equipped to judge the masterpieces he had fermenting in a plastic bucket at the top of the basement stairs. I did have to give him points for creativity from time to time, even when his choices were bad enough to wreck my weekend and wake the dead. One cold winter night, Darren was fretting over his latest concoction, which had been sitting silently in its fermentation bucket since the night before. It was a bad sign for the beer and meant the entire batch was probably wasted thanks to the frigid outside temperatures that were too much for our rickety little house to keep at bay. In the living room, the temperature held at 58 degrees with the heat on, regardless of the thermostat's setting. The kitchen stayed at 54, and the bathroom, which had no heat source in it at all, usually reached about 42 degrees during the day and had a permanent waterfall of ice on the inside of the window next to the toilet. The radiators clunked and gurgled away as hard as they could, which made the three-inch radius around the ancient metal coils the only tolerable spots in the house. Neither I nor the beer found it to be a workable temperature. So, what's a savvy home brewer to do when his brewer's yeast and his wife fail to thrive in such an environment? The only logical thing, of course. Hand your wife the fermentation bucket blanket and put your fermentation bucket directly on the radiator. Genius. The blanket only helped me a little and did nothing for the chillblains that were forming on my toes. His fermentation bucket, on the other hand, sprang to life in less than an hour. I told you this would work, Darren said the next night as the bucket bubbled away atop the kitchen radiator. It seemed like a terrible idea. I was reading online about higher alcohols that can form if the fermentation temp is too high, I said, trying to credit the unsourced ramblings of an internet blogger instead of those pesky chemistry classes I took in college. It might be a little off, but it's fine. It's better than losing the whole batch, he assured me. To my recollection, a little off in biochemical parlance was rarely considered fine, but Darren let his bubbling cauldron of Frankenstein yeast ferment on. Over and over it thumped and spat as it sat alone on the kitchen radiator. There was no escaping it. The thumping went on and on until it finally stopped one night just as we were getting ready to go to bed. Darren was overjoyed. I'll transfer it tomorrow. I told you it's fine he said, and then drifted off to sleep. The constant thumping had been my constant companion for days. When it stopped, I felt oddly alone. The silence kept me from sleeping, and once I finally fell asleep, I was restless and full of dreams. I dreamed that I was in the kitchen with a tiny old man. He looked like a life-sized Italian gnome, which I don't think was ever a real thing, but it's the best description I could find for him. He was short, fat, and bald in a white undershirt and navy work pants. 
I half expected him to give me a special recipe for Italian gravy or to tell me there was a body cemented into the front patio. Instead, he just stood there in the moonlit kitchen shaking his head back and forth in slow motion. Next, there was a loud boom. I flinched and dropped to the floor, and then he was gone. I was alone in the moonlight, and my dream moved on to something else. The next morning, I headed downstairs like it was any other morning. My dreams were fading away, and I was anxious for some coffee and some news headlines. As I reached the bottom of the stairs, a rancid smell hit my nose like a spike to the brain. As I stepped through the kitchen door, I saw the full extent of the carnage. Darren's beer bucket had built up so much pressure that it blew its lid and spewed its yeasty innards from floor to ceiling. Primordial ale was dripping from the walls, the cabinets, the sink, and the loops of the radiator like zombie guts down a chain-link fence. It seemed that the gnome, whoever he was, had tried to warn me. I wasn't sure which was more shocking, the mess or the warning from the other side. Maybe he was the previous owner trying to protect his property. Maybe it was future Darren, short and bald, reminiscing about his past with such vigor that he made it into my dream as a warning. Whatever it was, it wasn't a very good job. It got my attention, but it didn't change the outcome. Darren came into the kitchen as I stood there. Holy shit, he said groggily. What a fucking mess. Yeah, no kidding. Sorry about your beer. Maybe it's just too cold in here to brew in the winter, I said, hoping that the kitchen might go back to being just a kitchen and not a brewery for a while. Oh, they make thermal wraps for this kind of thing. Darren tiptoed through the beer guts and headed down the stairs to the basement. A moment later, he returned with the rest of his beer equipment and some old towels. He tossed the towels on the floor in front of him and scooted his feet to absorb the liquid on his direct path to the radiator. See? No big deal, he said as he prepped the transfer bucket. Don't worry, it'll be fine. Realizing that he was only cleaning what was in his way, I grabbed the remaining towels and started blotting up the rest. Why bother transferring it? It's ruined. There's no way it'll be safe to drink, I said with genuine concern. Jesus, Elaine, you're so negative. It's fine, he replied. If it's bad, I'll throw it out later. It's too expensive to waste. Really, I don't think this is a good idea, I pushed back. That thing has been bubbling too much and sitting open for who knows how long. Now was not the time to tell him that a ghost gnome actually knew exactly how long it had been. I could only handle one crazy conversation at a time, especially before coffee. It's fine, he said again. It's not fine. Who knows what's been growing in there and who knows what kind of alcohol it will be. You could go blind, I said melodramatically as he continued the transfer. I was only partly joking. God, Darren spat out with exasperation. You're ridiculous. It's an experiment. Either it works or it doesn't, but I'm not throwing it out. He sealed the glass carboy and scooted on his towel to the sink with the empty, dripping plastic bucket. Anyway, Dave said the lid blew off his fermenter and his dog stuck his face in it and it was one of the best batches he ever made. I don't know if I would trust Dave all that much. He was clearly in need of a sale that day, and I'm not sure his guidance was exactly solid, I ranted. Obviously, it didn't kill him, but I don't know. It's fine, Darren said flatly as he finished cleaning the bucket and tossed the soiled towels down the cellar stairs. I'll get the rest of this mess later. 
I could use some coffee. The beer guts were still dripping in the loops of the radiator. The wall splatter was mostly dry. This needs to be cleaned before it dries, I said. Okay, I'll get the coffee myself, I guess, Darren exhaled with mild irritation. All right, I guess I'll just clean this up myself then, I said as I stepped around the sticky pools of beer to get to the basement door. I said I'll do it, he said in a high-pitched dismissive tone. Everything has to be your way. Throw that out. You'll go blind. Clean this up before it dries. Ugh, he mocked. It wasn't even a good imitation. I could have given him credit or even laughed for a good one, but that was just bitchy. Oh, I'm so sorry I thought you should clean up after yourself. It's not an unreasonable expectation, I said with an overwhelming tone of indignation. It stinks, and it's a fucking mess. I didn't make this mess. It's called an accident. It just happened. You're the one who's always bitching about wasted money. I did this for you. God, you are such a fucking control freak, he barked back. I was blown out. I spun around on my heels, stomped down the basement stairs, and stepped off the last step straight onto a sopping wet towel full of stinking beer guts. I snorted sharply in frustration. My socks were saturated. Suddenly there was a dark flash to my left among the boxes in the storage room behind the stairs. I turned to get a better look at it, but there was nothing there. As angry as I was about the beer explosion and Darren and my disgusting socks, I couldn't help myself. After last night's dream, I had to investigate. What else was the stupid gnome trying to warn me about? Maybe there was some wild creature nesting in our basement, or maybe the gnome wanted to gripe at me too since I didn't understand his warning. The floor in that part of the cellar was covered in a layer of gritty dirt that seemed to regenerate itself no matter how many times I cleaned it. I would sweep and scrub to the point of exhaustion, only to turn around and see little drifts of filth forming in my wake. Eventually I stopped cleaning it at all and stacked our storage boxes right on top of the drifts. It had been months since the last time I ventured back there, and it was a mess. I picked my way around the piles and peeked behind the old furniture and frames. I found nothing out of place. If it was a rat, I wasn't really sure I knew what to do about it, and there was certainly no way I was going to ask Darren for help. If it was the gnome, he really needed to talk to Darren directly. And if it was some homeless dude who was squatting in our basement, that would be a whole other story altogether and would probably land us a spot in the A block on the evening news. It was too much to think about. The hairs on the back of my neck spiked. I had to get out of that storage room, and I had to focus. I picked up the towels by the stairs and hurried into the small laundry room. The smell of the hops shot into my nostrils and made my eyes water as I dumped the towels into the washing machine. I closed the lid and leaned my forearms on the smooth ceramic top. Dizzy sickness washed over me as pain throbbed in the top of my head. The air behind me moved like someone was at my back. I spun around and saw the gnome. He was standing right behind me. He didn't move or speak. He just stood there motionlessly gazing into my eyes. His form was as solid as mine. Normally, I would have screamed bloody murder at something like this, but not this time. I felt peaceful as I looked at him, and he returned my gaze with this odd, placid expression on his face. I reached my hands forward to touch him, which was completely stupid. If he had been real, like some kind of homeless basement squatter, it could have ended very badly. 
but without thinking it through at all, I did it. As my fingers got closer to him, the hairs on my arms stood on end. A warm buzz enveloped my fingers. A sense of connection washed over me. In that moment, I understood everything. Everything about what, I can't say. I just knew for that moment, I was okay. Everything else might explode, but I was fine. A sharp pain pierced my stomach. I winced and bent forward, clutching my gut. The throbbing in my head intensified, and I dropped to my knees in one awkward slump. The connection was broken. The supernatural Xanax had left the building. The gnome was gone, and I was alone. I was cold and sweaty. I was shaking uncontrollably. A few moments later, my gut pain stopped abruptly, leaving a reverberating hole where the pain had been. It was better, but I wasn't normal by any means. Hey, you coming up sometime soon, Darren said from the top of the stairs. We need breakfast. I slowly got to my feet. Yeah, be there in a minute, I said as I tried to put the pieces of the last few minutes together in my head. I'd experienced visions and daydreams before. I'd seen translucent figures floating by the ceiling in my room. I'd watched shadows dart from behind doors and slip into corners at twilight. I'd had visitors at the foot of my bed in the last lucid moments before sleep, and of course there were the night terrors. I had had all of that since I was a kid. This time was different from any of that. He'd lived in a dream and in the world somehow. He looked solid and real, and he certainly wasn't something I would have knowingly wished into existence. He was something else. All I knew was that I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to feel like I felt with that feeling again. It felt like it meant something. It felt important. There was no time to contemplate it any longer. I had to pull myself together, and I certainly wasn't going to talk to Darren about it. I would have sounded like a lunatic. I turned back to the washer, dumped in the soap, and started it. I grabbed the mop and the bucket and the remaining towels and headed toward the stairs. Before I started up to the kitchen, I took one last look around at the dingy cellar and wondered what else might be lurking there. I wondered if I would ever see the gnome again, and then I headed up the stairs. Against all rational thought, Darren saw his brewpocalypse beer through to completion and started another batch as soon as he could under the premise that he needed a backup batch in case the brewpocalypse batch wasn't drinkable. It's important to consider Darren's specific use of the word drinkable. It was a detail that I didn't catch in the moment. As with all communication, a clear and accurate understanding of situational definitions is critical. For example, I was not aware that drinkable to Darren only accounted for his ability to swallow it without throwing it back up. It in no way implied that it tasted good, and it certainly didn't mean that it was safe for human consumption. Once it was bottled, Darren was unreasonably proud of that particular batch of beer. When the time came to test it, he made sure I was there. I didn't need to test it to know that it was going to be terrible, but I didn't want to hurt his feelings. From the moment he cracked the lid off the bottle, the smell of it was acrid and stinging. He poured the bottle's contents into a pint glass and waited anxiously for me to taste it. One tiny little sip was enough. It's very pungent, I said as I put the pint glass as far away from me on the table as I could. Darren laughed. 
The word is hoppy. He sipped again and swished it around in his mouth before swallowing. I think this worked out okay, he said as he held the pint glass up to the light. He took a full swig and finished swallowing with a decisive, Ah, that'll work. I can't do it, I said. That's all you. That's a headache in a pint glass as far as I'm concerned. It's an IPA, he said dismissively. This is what real microbrew people live for. He grinned and swigged a little more. You're an aficionado now, I said with only the slightest hint of snarkiness. No, he said flatly. A connoisseur, I said with no change in tone. No, he said again. A beer buff then, I asked with a giggle. Stop it, he snapped. Why do you have to ruin everything? I didn't ruin anything, I said with a smile. The beer was already ruined when you siphoned it up off the floor. Darren ignored my last comment and whined at me like a child. I can't believe you called me that. Called you what? I laughed. A buff. You called me a buff. Why would you say that? He said angrily. I'm no buff. What's wrong with calling you a buff? You're an expert now, aren't you? I replied incredulously. I am an expert, but I am certainly not a buff, he yelled. What exactly do you think a buff is? I asked. I am not gay, he yelled, spraying a mist of beer apocalypse spittle into the air. Since when does buff mean gay? I yelled back. Everybody knows that, Elaine. I don't know that, I said flatly. Darren gurgled a short ugh and stormed out of the room. You make me crazy, he said as he stomped up the stairs. Ah, definitions. The cause of and the answer to so many of life's little problems. A few moments later, he stomped back down the stairs to the kitchen, poured another bottle of his toxic brew, and stomped back up to the bedroom. For twenty minutes, I sat at the kitchen table contemplating the deeper nuances of the word buff. I knew that I could buff the floor. I could buff my leather shoes. I had worn a colored face powder named Buff back when I was slightly less pale and anemic-looking. I had been told I looked really buff once when I was in particularly good shape in my twenties. I was usually in the buff when I took a shower. It seemed like buff might even work as a British euphemism for masturbation, but I didn't know any Brits that I could call to find out for sure. I had never in my life known the word buff to equal gay. Even if it did, with all the other possible meanings, how did he land there? And why on earth did he care so much? Maybe it was a Pittsburgh thing. The whole thing was ridiculous. As I sat there contemplating our conversation, it slowly started to sink into my brain that I was genuinely upset. In fact, the whole thing was upsetting. It was not just upsetting because it was stupid. It wasn't just upsetting because I thought he was smarter than that. It wasn't just upsetting because he insisted that I taste his disgusting, noxious brew. It was upsetting because I was offended. I was offended by his asinine, bigoted, small-minded attitude about a simple word that, to my knowledge at the time, wasn't a particularly randy euphemism for much of anything. Maybe that disgusting swill was an accidental truth serum. 
Maybe he had properly killed just enough brain cells to have finally lost the filter between his brain and his mouth. Maybe we were really going to get down into it. It seemed like something we needed to talk about. In the end, Darren finished every bottle of that horrible batch of toxic beer apocalypse brew. I often wondered if he really liked it, or if he only drank it to prove that he could. I couldn't stand to be in the room when he poured it into a glass, and I got my very first official migraine a few days later. Other than that, things went on as usual, and we never talked about the word buff or Darren's latent homophobia again. (laughs) 